Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We've been looking at Psalm 132, and Psalm 132 really does explain what God is hungry for. It really sums up what God is wanting to establish, and it's the backstory on David's life. I want to read through this very quick, and uh, we're going to continue to get into that passage. I just went way back to 129. Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardship he endured. This, this is written by Solomon, I am convinced. When we get to heaven, you're going to find out I'm right, that Solomon wrote this, and it's David's backstory, it, you cannot understand King David being the man after God's own heart. You can't understand the value system of David without understanding Psalm 132. Because Psalm 132 is the backstory before we ever see him publicly, before we ever see David on the battlefield, before Goliath, before we ever see a crown resting on his head, we see this is the explanation to who David really is. So Solomon says, God, remember my dad and the hardship he endured. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob, a place for the Lord. David was hungry to provide a place where God could rest, a resting place for the Lord. The very next verse, he says, we heard about an Ephathra. We, we came upon it in the fields of Jar, and Ephathra is another name for Bethlehem. Jar is Kariath Jerem, and David heard about the Ark of the Covenant as a young boy in Bethlehem. It had been relegated to Kariath Jerem because so many of the Israelites had died when they opened the lid, and so they had relegated it off to the side. And David heard a rumor, and he went and he encountered the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant, and it ruined him for life. And it set him on a trajectory that created a hunger in David's heart and he said I must create a place for the Lord I had an interesting conversation with a pastor the other day well you'll you'll meet him in a few I don't know sometime in the next couple months here uh Zach Terrell uh he and his he and Clark Collier Quimby Collier's son are getting ready to plant a church in Kansas and we're going to help them out and uh, we're going to be uh, credentialing some of their staff. And so they're going to be here. You'll get to meet them. But I was talking to Zach the other day. And he, he, he framed something in a way I've never heard anybody frame it this way. He talked about layers of God's presence. Or facets or dimensions of the presence of God. And, uh, you know, Scripture says, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's a commitment God makes to the individual of his presence. And we've talked about this before. There's an added dimension of God's presence that he'll commit to the corporate gathering. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 says the church is the fullness of him. And so God will commit something of himself to the two or three or the, the corporate gathering that he won't commit to the one or the, to the one. There's times where you'll need something from God. He will not give it to you in your prayer closet. You can fast, you can pray, you can cry, you can complain, but you're not going to find it until you connect with the body of Christ. 
because God intends to keep us interdependent and dependent upon one another. And then he goes, there's this other dimension where I will inhabit the praise of my people. So when the individuals who God will not forsake gather together, there's an added dimension. When we begin to worship, there's an added dimension. But then there's the place of his presence. And that's what David was hungry for. You know, there are geographic locations that have been marked by heaven. And it's not some arbitrary thing. It's not a thing where God just says, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a town by the toe. I know towns don't have toes, but he doesn't just arbitrarily say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mark that place with my presence. He doesn't do that with churches, arbitrarily. It's not a matter of the sovereignty of God. It's a matter of the positioning, the posturing of the human hearts within that church or that city. God is looking for people that have the heart of David. So in Amos chapter nine, when God says, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, what he's talking about is finding people that are like David that are after his heart. People that are hungry for the presence of God. Because God is hungry to sanctify places that can become beacons of deliverance and healing and uh, salvation for the earth. There needs to be places on the earth. Matter of fact, I came by this verse this week. L listen to this verse. I don't know how I ever missed this verse. Listen to this. This is in the middle of a rebuke. God is rebuking Israel. He's rebuking the priests. And then in verse 11, he's talking about them sacrificing the wrong offering. And the wrong offerings were that they were sacrificing animals that had something wrong with them. Maybe a blind sheep or a lame ox. And God says, you've defiled my table. And then in the midst of this rebuke, God throws out this prophecy that reveals his heart and his desire. And this word will be fulfilled. And we are in the middle of this happening on planet Earth. Listen to what this says. Oh man, I just lost it. <laughs> Malachi chapter one. I'm trying to buy time while I find it. Malachi chapter one. I wanna say it's verse 11. Listen to what it says. Yeah, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to, the setting, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for not my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is hungry not only to be worshiped through every tongue, every language, to be worshiped by every tribe, but he wants his name lifted up in every place. God is concerned about places. He wants to have places that are sanctified where people can come to and the word comes out. I, I don't know why I thought of this this morning, but something triggered. I, I remember this was several years back. There was a guy came in here and he asked for prayer and I asked him how he heard about us. He said, I was at a bar and I was complaining about something. He had a pain and the, he, the guy at the bar said, go to that Heartland church, they'll pray for you. I'm thinking, I'm, I hope it wasn't one of our elders, you know. It's like, I don't know who it was sitting at the bar, but uh, I'm, I'm glad that we were known at the bar, that they, they knew you can go there and get healed, get touched by God. There needs to be places 
sanctified places. This really does matter to God. This thing of, well, I've got my own relationship with the Lord. It's not enough for you to just have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's great. If you don't have that, you can't even get in the door on this whole thing. But it's more than you personally knowing Jesus. It's you personally knowing Jesus and you bring that deposit to other believers and you begin to worship his name. You cultivate a place of his presence so that there's a sanctified place that you go from there and you bring people to and you go out and you be, uh, you be touched by heaven and you take the message out. Yesterday I had the privilege of praying with a, 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 a gentleman. His children are taken care of by a gal that goes to church here. She's a bold little gal and she'd been preaching to him. So he came and saw me yesterday and it was, one, it was the highlight of my month. Shared, shared the gospel with him. And it, he, was, he was so ripe, you just poke it and the apple fell off the tree. He just cried through to salvation. It was a beautiful thing. It was glorious. We go out. and We share the good news. And we bring them into the open heaven. A number of years ago, I was preaching in a, in a church in Mexico, and it was a, an amazing church, open heaven in this place, and the founder of the church was no longer there. He had gone off to plant other churches, and I remember standing in that atmosphere and thinking, this is amazing. It was about 1,500 people in the room. The, the facilities were amazing. They, they were renting a college campus. It was a beautiful place, and I just began to ask the Lord about what had created that place. And the Lord began to talk to me about Bethel, Genesis 28. It's the first time we see a sanctified place like that. And the Lord began to talk to me about how there were many people in that room that were enjoying an open heaven but didn't understand what created it. You know, a lot of times people can come in a place and they can enjoy the environment but they don't understand what created that environment. In fact, they can enjoy it, but they would not even, they would tell the people that created it to tone down a little bit. You know, David was told to tone down by his family. Psalm 69 says that David became a byword. The drunks in the gates began to sing and make jokes about David. He says, I became, it, it, there was, Hatred that came upon me because of my fastings and his hunger. His family, he was alienated from his own family because David was consumed with this thing of the presence of God. But David was assigned by heaven to create the tabernacle of David out of which they would appeal to heaven, give God the honor, do his name, cry out to him for his purposes and from there the boundary lines of the kingdom would exponentially advance. And God is still hungry for that same thing. We don't worship in the morning on Sunday morning because we like music. We worship him because he's worthy. God is looking for a people who will exalt his name in all the earth. And when we begin to exalt God's name in a region, it displaces the principalities and powers over that region. When scripture says God enthrones himself on the praises of his people, that is a warfare term. 
We are dethroning, we are displacing the enemy over a place. And our worship, when, we, when you begin to worship the Lord and you take that stubborn stand and day after day you worship the Lord over your circumstances and week after week you worship the Lord over your region and year after year you establish his praise, those praises will at first be challenged. Your life will be tested during the week over what you declare with your mouth on Sunday. But if you will stand your ground, I'm telling you, what happens is it begins to displace the enemy. That is really what Psalm 132 is about. When David said, I will not give rest to myself until God has a place. I want to build God a house. God said, I'm going to build you a house and you're going to rule and reign from that place. I'm going to, ex I'm going to extend authority to your house. And the way for us to garner authority in our spiritual lives is for us to enthrone God over the circumstances of our life through stubborn praise. We take our stand and we declare his lordship and his worth over our life. And that was the cry of David's heart. David was bound to this dream. It was the dream in God's heart that God would have a place. And Malachi, the last book of the Bible, tells us that God is hungry to have that expressed across the earth. There's a principle in the New Testament. It's first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. God established it in Israel, the tabernacle of David, a place where God was honored. He was glorified. The, the honor due his name was given to him. And then God declares in Amos chapter 9 that I will rebuild that. But it's not a physical tent it's the heart of David, and God wants to multiply that across the earth. A place from which people can hear his voice. I was struck this week all over again at the revelation we find in the Psalms. I would have to say personally, I've been studying the word of God for well over 30 years, going on 40 years now. And I think there's more revelation pounded into the Psalms than any other passage in the scriptures, New Testament included. David's revelation in the Psalms is staggering. There are layers and layers and layers. And I can study a passage and think I wore it out. I told you a couple weeks ago, I was preaching on one Psalm and my son said, Dad, I could quote it. Don't preach on it again. I said, no, you couldn't. He quoted the whole passage. He was like 10 at the time. I'm still preaching on that passage. There's so much there. But it's because those passages came out of the secret place with David. It's why David had scribes, recorders. They would record what the Lord was saying. Because the tabernacle of David, and we're giving God the honor due his name, when we're, when we're worshiping him, it's not a one-way street with us just telling God what we want. God wants to share the desires of his heart with us. Again, the first time we see a sanctified place where someone could enter into was Jacob at Genesis 28. Jacob thought he was just going to any, it was just an arbitrary place. He was on the run trying to get away from his brother because he had ripped off his brother. Through deception, he had stolen his birthright. So now he was on the run 
And it says in Genesis 20, 28, and he came to a place. To him it was just a place, any place, but to God it was a specific place. And God had sovereignly ordered that Jacob would pass through that place. Up until that time it was known as Luz. Jacob rested his head upon a stone and took a nap. And he entered into an encounter with God. And it says that in this dream, there was a ladder resting on the earth, but reaching into heaven. That is the mark of the tabernacle of David. That is the mark of what God is wanting to create. Something that's resting on earth, but reaching into heaven. And in that encounter, the angels were ascending and descending. Angels are messengers. They were bringing messages up to God and bringing messages down from God. And God stood at the top of that open heaven and he declared to Jacob his destiny. He declared the promises that God was going to release to him. And the mark of an open heaven, the mark of a Bethel, the mark of the tabernacle of David, it's all one thing. The mark of that is there becomes an opening in the spirit where people can encounter God and they can hear what God has for them. They can vent their request to the Lord and the Lord will vent his request to them and there's that mutual exchange of request and affection. And Jacob woke up from that dream and he said, surely God was here and I knew it not. This is none other and he gives it two names. He said, this is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven. From an earthly perspective, it was the house of God. And that's where we get the name Bethel. Beth meaning house and El, Elohim, the house of God. This is the, a place where God dwells. But he also called it the gate of heaven. Because when people establish a place where God is welcome, week after week, day after day, those places of an open heaven, we see it all down through history. Places of outpouring and revival. Where word gets out, you can encounter God in that place. There's, some, there's a dimension of God that God will visit in those places that you don't find elsewhere. People get healed easier in those places. People encounter God easier in those places. People are delivered easier in those places. It's because the skies have been cleared. And there is the gate of heaven, the traffic of heaven happens in those places. And it comes from people entertaining the presence of God. But here's the thing. Jacob entered into a place he experienced but did not understand. And what happened is Jacob stumbled by divine order into a place that his grandfather had created through his own sacrifice. Twice in his history, Abram, his grandfather had built an altar at Bethel. And the sacrifices of the previous generation opened something in the spirit. We are to be spiritual people. I remember when Bob Phillips, he, he told me a number of years ago, Bob was a pastor here before he passed away. He's a tremendous man of God. And Bob said, Dave, there's something about Heartland uniquely designed to understand the spiritual realm. I took that very seriously from a man like Bob Phillips. We're need, we need to understand the spirit. 
The spiritual realm is not just some big open cavern up here. There is a topography to the spirit. There are openings in the spirit geographically. There are places of visitation. And they weren't, they didn't just happen. It happened because of heaven and hell's response to human activity in those places. There are places that are very closed in the spirit. I guarantee you, before Jay arrived in East St. Louis, I don't, I've been through East St. Louis, I've been there many times, but I, didn't, I don't need to go there. All I need to do is listen to the statistics he shared this morning. And I'm gonna tell you, that's a place known as the gate of hell. And what God calls are people that will plant themselves in the gate of hell and declare this will be a gate of heaven. The gate of hell is not, it's not the entrance to hell. It's not a location. It's the occupation of hell into the entry points of our city. It literally means that heaven or hell has occupied the spiritual entry points to a region because of the human activity. And what God is looking for are people who will plant themselves and say, God has assigned this place to me and I've declared that there's gonna be an exchange. We're gonna displace hell and heaven is gonna begin to occupy the gates. Psalm 24, in intercession this week, there were several people that had words about Psalm 24. God was breathing on that passage. And that passage, it closes with these words, Swing wide, ye heavenly gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What in the world is that talking about? It's talking about the entry points of our cities, of our regions, that God plants people to stake their claim for the kingdom of heaven. And God wants that all across the earth. The glory of the Lord spreading across the earth is going to come by God's people staking their claim across the earth. And we, we establish his fame. We stake it and we begin to worship him and we take our stand and we become that witness of the things of God in the earth in those places. And God is calling us to establish that open heaven. We've had those those seasons of outpouring. But God has us contending for something that's beyond a revival in a church. God wants to mark this region and he's looking for those who will identify with that. That will so identify with it regardless of what anybody thinks that they'll set themselves to fasting and prayer until that thing opens up. Again, David became the ridicule, even of his own family, he was alienated from them. And it says specifically in Psalm 69, it was because of his fastings he became a byword. The implication is they were like, tone down. <laughs> just, just ease up, David, you're a little radical. It's the passage where we get that phrase, the zeal of my father's house has consumed me. And when the disciples saw Jesus cleansing the temple, they said, I've seen, this. I've seen this in scripture. That is the spirit of David. The zeal of his father's house has consumed him. And what did he say? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's the hunger of God to see his name declared on every territory of the nations of the earth. 
God is wanting to replicate, replicate the heart of David so he can rebuild the tabernacle of David. So God can visit planet earth with his presence. There is something more than an than a individual having an open heaven. That's a wonderful thing. You have, by blood-bought right, an open heaven access as an individual. And that can be cultivated over time. And make no mistake about it, there are levels of that. There are some people who have greater pull with heaven than others. We don't like to hear that, but it's fact. It's scriptural. There's a verse that says, even if, if even, I want to say it was even Daniel and Noah prayed, I would not answer. The implication is they carry more weight with me than other men. But there's an added dimension when we come together as believers. There's something established that God will extend himself to and reveal himself to and release himself to when he finds a group of people. I'm telling you, that is what Psalm 24 is talking about. Psalm 24 starts with this phrase, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, for he established it on the waters. He, he built it on, the, uh, on the, the waters. It's something to that effect. And then David asked the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And then he shifts gears. He goes from questioning in prayer to prophesying. And he talks about the generation that will seek him. That there's a generation that God's going to release into the earth with the hunger. And that's when he begins to shift into prophesying, swing wide, ye heavenly gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. God is looking to secure that kind of people. And God wants to release a hunger in our hearts. And a vision of faith in our hearts. For those gates to swing wide over your neighborhood, over your home over the region. There's a reason. God has chosen the times and places in which men should live because God has delegated this generation and this location to us. We are stewards of this generation, this time in human history. There's a reason that God assigned this moment, this chaotic moment of upheaval. Because God custom designed us for this moment. And we are up to the challenge. Yes. And God has assigned us to this location. And we are to cultivate this location. If you look in Genesis chapter 28, at the end of, or when, when Jacob wakes up from his dream, he said, God was here and I knew it not. He was enjoying an atmosphere he didn't understand. Because his grandfather had opened something for him. And Jacob took the, the stone that he used as a pillow and he poured oil on it. And he set it up as a memorial stone. And he renamed the place. It was called Bethel, the house of God. And God promised to him the territory upon which he was laying. But you know what happened with Jacob? He didn't enter into that for many years. Jacob continued on in his journey, went and found Laban, his uncle, married, married his first wife that he was conned into marrying, just like he had conned his brother. He got a good dose of his own behavior. Sometimes God's got to give you some of yourself to break you. And uh, so then 
He married his second wife. And then finally he was leaving Laban and he heads, he's heading back into the territory that God had promised him. And on the border of his promised land, he gets word that his brother's coming for him. And then they add as an addendum. And by the way, he's got 400 men with him. And Jacob, fear strikes his heart. And he realizes, I'm, I'm about to get what I deserve. I conned my brother out of his, his inheritance and now he's coming for me. And Jacob has a showdown with God. And what here, here's the irony. Jacob received a promise by resting underneath the open heaven. But in order to enter in and seize that promise, he had to wrestle with an angel. Because you can't fully enter in simply by the labors of your forefather. We can enjoy an atmosphere that our forefathers create. You can ride in on the coattails of other people. And there's a sense in which that is a wonderful scriptural thing. But I'm telling you, it's not enough. There comes a place for every one of us to build our own altars. And rather than build an altar at that spot, Jacob under Bethel sent up a memorial stone. It was a place of remembrance, but it was not a place of sacrifice. He made some promises to God, but there was a big if. If you look at the passage, it's really outrageous. Jacob literally says this to God. God, if you'll pull through on all these things, and you'll take care of me, and you'll protect me, and you'll do all these things, then I tell you what, you will be my God, and I'll even give you a tithe. Read it. It's right there in Genesis chapter 28. It's an outrageous, arrogant deal that Jacob tries to broker with God. And Jacob sends him off to be treated the same way he treated his brother under Laban for all those years. And he comes back and it was the culmination of his own behavior. Now there's a showdown with God. And Jacob, whereas he received the promise at Bethel, the house of God, he wrestled with an angel at a place he renamed Peniel face of God. And in that passage, Jacob had to face who he really was. And in this wrestling with the angel, he's refusing to let go. And the angel touches his hip and literally yanks his hip out. That is the strongest joint in the human body. And if pulled out, you talk an enormous strength and enormous pain. And yet Jacob would not let go. There was a tenacity, a desperation in Jacob. You see, there was something in Jacob way back, even from the beginning, even when he was in his mother's womb. He was a twin. There was Esau and Jacob. And even in their mother's womb, they were wrestling. And as Esau came out as the firstborn, he, he, he was the first one through the birth canal. But Jacob literally had a hold of his heel. It's like, I want out. He's trying, to, he's trying to pull him back. He wanted that birthright. So much so that even before they're born, God said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now that's a theological dilemma we'll have to deal with later. But I'm telling you, the reason, Charles Spurgeon one time, someone asked him, how could, how could God hate Esau? And Spurgeon, in the way he would normally talk, he said, I don't know, I've read the story and I'm just trying to figure out how he could love Jacob. 
Because Jacob was a con man, but there was something about him that valued the inheritance. And Esau, who knew the promise, he was, he was God would literally be the, known as the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. That was, that was what was supposed to happen. But Esau came home hungry one day, and Jacob, who valued the inheritance, and Esau, who didn't, Jacob intercepted him, and Esau said, man, I'm really hungry. Give me some of that soup you're cooking. He said, give me your inheritance. And Esau said, well, what good is my inheritance if I die? And he traded the promise of God for the satisfaction of a momentary hunger pang. And the inheritance was transferred. And even though Jacob was a con man, a deceiver, that's literally what his name, the implication of the name Jacob was heel grabber and it meant deceiver. And he lived up to his name. But there was something in him that wanted the promise. We see in Genesis chapter 32, he's wrestling with the angel. The angel touches his hip. He cries out in pain, but still he wouldn't let go. And the angel said, the sun's coming up. Let me go. And he said, not until you bless me. There was something about him that said, I've, I must have the blessing of God. It was the same thing that was in David's heart. That was in Jacob's heart. There was a desperation for a touch from heaven. And so before the angel would bless him, he asked me, he said, what is your name? I'll tell you, when God asks you a question, it's not for information. It's not for his information, it's for your revelation. Whenever God asks you a question, pause for a moment. Because you're about to learn something. God is a very good counselor. When he asks you a question, it's to reveal something in you not to reveal something to him. And he said, what is your name? And he said, I'm Jacob. Jacob knew what his name was. He had to come to terms with who he really was. See, there's an interesting thing about that encounter. On the one hand, he was holding on for blessing. On the other hand, he had to admit who he was. Someone came up to me in worship this morning they said, I, I feel like the Lord is telling me, and I feel like it might be for the congregation that we just need to, we need to admit where we're at. We need to admit to God where we're at. So that's what was happening with Jacob. He had to own, after all those years of trying to do it on his own and con and manipulate, he was trying to get by manipulation what his grandfather got through relationship. You can see this generational digression. We see it all down through history. Abraham, the first generation, got it by, by, by relationship, face-to-face, -face, personal relationship. What Abraham got by relationship, Isaac got by inheritance. And what Isaac got by inheritance, Jacob tried to get by manipulation. And God had to reset it. This is a sermon for another day, but I'm telling you, the Pentecostal movement is in that same place right now. We need a fresh encounter of wrestling through until we get a fresh touch. There's that old saying, God has no grandchildren, he ain't got no great-grandchildren either. We need a fresh touch from God, and Jacob had to enter into his own encounter. 
It wasn't enough that he rested under an open heaven created by the sacrifice of his grandfather. He had to build his own altar. There comes a place where we have to put our own sacrifice on the line. And that is not earning something with God. It's a matter of exchange. As long as there's something more important than God in your life, that will be your God. And our walk with God is a continual, ongoing relationship where God begins to put his, heart on, his finger on things and says, I want this. I want you to put this on the altar. And as we do that, the reward is enormous. We get more of him as we give him more of us. And often we don't realize that something is in a place it shouldn't be until God requires it of us. But God calls us to that wrestling with him. And Jacob had to admit, I am Jacob. And it was at that point the angel declared a name change in Jacob. And he said, you were Jacob, but now you will be Israel, a prince with God. And there's, it's a beautiful passage. I wish we had time to, more time this morning. But it says, if you look in the passage, it says, and as the sun was rising, Jacob walks, he, he go, crosses over the ford on the river Jordan and he's walking with the limp because he'd had his hip knocked out. And so there's this beautiful picture. It's the dawning of a new day and he's got a new name and he's got a new walk and it hurts. And we see in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, it has this little sentence about Jacob. And it said, Jacob worshiped as he leaned. There's a very real sense in which you can't really worship until you lean. Until, you really, until you've had to come face to face with God and you've had to admit, God, that's who I am. Lord, I'm Jacob. Some people, they're holding on for the blessing, but they won't admit who they are. God has to send them under an, a Laban for a while until they learn who they are. But there's people, there's others who know who they are, but they won't lay hold of the blessing. They live as a Jacob. God wants to show us those things in our hearts, but he wants to transform our name. He wants to make you a prince with God. He said to Jacob, he said, you have, you have wrestled with God and prevailed. The only way to win a wrestling match with God is to be pinned. When God wins, you win. And when God loses, you lose. But he had a name change and there was something that shifted in Jacob's life. And with that, he entered the promised land. I know many of you have felt it over these last number of weeks of intercession. But there's some deep dealings with God that's going on. And we just need to continue to respond and open up the deeps of our heart and cry out to him. This nation needs a move of God. This, this region needs open heaven places. It needs places of his presence. But it's only going to be created by Jacobs who lay themselves on the altar and lay hold of God and say, God, I'm not letting go until you bless me. When you lay hold of God in that way and you say, God, I'm not letting go until you change me, until you change my name, until you do something in me, I'm telling you, God will answer that kind of prayer. 
There have, my, I can look back at my history and there were junctures again and again where I got to a desperate point and I shut myself in a room and said, God, I'm not leaving this room until you touch me. I have got to have a fresh touch from heaven. Sometimes it took two hours. Sometimes it took three. Sometimes I pulled some hair out, literally. <laughs> but God never failed to meet me in those times. The question was, can I get to that place of desperation? There is a place where we receive freely an inheritance. That's what salvation is. But your effectiveness in the kingdom is going to be a matter of how will you lay hold of heaven and get a hold of God until he blesses you, until he changes you. And when God blesses you, you will walk different. You will worship as you lean. Let's pray. Go ahead and stand this morning. I just want to pray over us. If you would, just put your hands up before the Lord. Father, I thank you, God. Lord, I thank you for the fresh hunger that you've been stirring in our midst. Lord, I thank you, God, for the, that, that deep churning of intercession, the dealings of God. Lord, I thank you for those those prophetic encouragements along the way. But Lord, I'm asking, God, that you would give us a tenacity. Lord, that we would have the spirit of Jacob upon us, Lord, that would lay hold of you and not let go until we have a fresh touch. Lord, let us be like David that said, I will not rest until the Lord has a resting place in our region. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.